Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Ubuntu Podcast. I'm Hanel Kielma, joined with one of our co-hosts. Go ahead, David. What's up, you guys? It's David. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, David. Our other co-host, Nazi Will Show, he will be joining us for our next episode, so don't fear, he will be back really soon. Yes, we miss the man. <laughs> Definitely, but he'll be back very, very soon. So this episode is a continuation of our discussion on migration, in particular, Black immigration for part one, we discussed Black immigration to the U.S. This time we'll focus on Black immigration from an international perspective. So Dave and I will continue that conversation here, and we're both looking forward to it. Just to remind you all, here at the Ubuntu Podcast, our mission is to create a radically thoughtful space for the African diaspora to deeply explore how we can create, sustain, and struggle to achieve genuine community and solidarity across the world. Excited to be on, David? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Oh, no. <laughs> no, yeah. Thanks for that great intro, Hinnok. As you said, I'm excited. Part one was a really great episode. If you have not listened to it yet, you got to because it was so good. And we talked all about what it means to think about the Black immigration experience from the perspective of the U.S. And so this is our segue into part two, which is going to expand that conversation. And we're going to be talking about Black lives around the world and how those two experiences of Black migrants share some important similarities and differences. The U.S. context was an important conversation to have because it directly impacts our lives, you know, me and Hinnock, in a very specific particular way as U.S. citizens, you know, we got to that path through variety of different reasons and different experiences and opportunities, but it, it does impact us in a, in a very direct way. But it's important that we keep the conversation going by taking a look at what that experience is like for people who are migrating to all different countries, globally, Black people. Definitely, David. And I think just to add to that, you know, in part one, we discussed how uh, migration has a pretty unique impact on members of the African diaspora, Black uh, diaspora particularly. From a global perspective, we also see that stories of Black migrants are becoming more uh, prevalent in media uh, globally. And sadly, it's often under, yeah, and oftentimes we see it under very negative circumstances. And most notably, many of us have become aware of the exploitation of migrants who take that long, perilous journey across the Mediterranean Sea into Europe. And so this is part of an important conversation. But as we did in part one, let's discuss the role of the migration narrative, this time from a global perspective. What are some of the common narratives that come to mind, at least for you, David, when you think of Black migration globally? Like, what are some of the things that you've seen? And just generally, like, what are the things that you've come across? And what comes to mind, essentially? I think one of the common uh, things that come to mind, like the story uh, of African migrants or Black migrants, is that, and I know we're going to talk about it, and I think that's important, to name this side of it, but I think it's often only discussed that Black people are migrating because of a disaster or because of a displacement. And I think that's very real and we have to address that. But I think often that conversation like leaves a lot of people without agency and we're not looking at the root cause of what might cause a family 
or cause an individual from a society in Africa, a country in Africa, a place in Africa to leave. And we're not looking at like historically, what are the undercurrents that created maybe over the course of two to three generations, this this need or this, this compulsion to like leave. And we don't think about colonialism. We don't think about the way that the extractive nature of how the rest of the world relates to Africa, the, the deterioration of like a lot of public systems like politics and education and government and, and healthcare and infrastructure. And it's like, we're just like, oh, Africans are coming here because there was a bomb or there's conflict or, and that's true. But even in those situations, there is, it's, the, it's usually the result of some kind of destabilization that was, that other countries are implicated in. You know, other policies foreign are implicated in or the architects of. And um, even when it's not like circumstance of chaos, you know, what pulls people to other places is usually the result of some kind of imperialism. And so again, everyone's been like, oh, here goes David imperialism. But it's true. And um, I think that's something that is a narrative that has to be expanded because when we think of why black people are migrating, it's not really a black or African issue, right? It's like a world issue because of what other people have chose to do or not do. You know what I mean? What about you? Definitely. I think that was all, uh, yeah, really valid points. And I think particularly when you focused on agency and how do we not necessarily give agency, but how do we remember that everyone has, you know, agency and people are, yeah, coming from, like you said, very nuanced circumstances. And not everyone, as you mentioned, is, is displaced or they're not displaced or they're not part of the forced migration kind of, kind of complex. So even recognizing that the black migrant narrative globally is one of nuance and it involves people who are, like you said, from that very real, um, coming from that context where they, they are, you know, um, being forced to leave their home of record, their, their, um, their homelands, and then other folks who are voluntarily doing it as well. Just seeing that both, both are uh, factors and both uh, create the experience is definitely really important. And like you said, I think it's important that we learn to challenge the common notions that we have. We're, we're more kind of, I think, exposed to migrants that are crossing oceans. And like we mentioned, the journey that a lot of migrants take through the Mediterranean into Europe is a very common route that we're aware of. That is a very prevalent route. And that is one in which there's definitely a lot of uh, concern, you know, in terms of the safety of migrants, the protection of migrants in that situation. But it's interesting to note that most African migrants aren't actually crossing oceans, they're actually crossing land borders within Africa. It's also important to note that migration has always taken place. Um, if you look at specific examples in Africa, you can look at Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where traders from the, the DRC that are actually bring in uh, items like food, like bananas or fabric and other goods to markets in the border town of Rusuzi in Rwanda. And then you also have Rwandans that are trading, taking different goods in like clothes, uh, small electronics, commodities in, into Goma in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So we can see that migration is also just a common part of people's lives yeah. uh, from a voluntary standpoint as well, which kind of, I think, adds on to, to the point that you were making there as well. Um, even if we look at the Caribbean, we can see how 
within the Black Diaspora, mm. uh, we see migrations taking place, in particular with Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The majority of Haitians oftentimes do uh, trade with people across the border in the DR. But then on the flip side, we also have forced migration that takes place or Haitians that migrate into the Dominican Republic uh, just seeking a better life, uh, seeking a life outside of poverty. But once they enter into the Dominican Republic, they're exposed to mm. uh, racism and old racist attitudes and tropes that are there that deal with issues such as colorism. And so we're aware of the fact that there is nuance in all of this as well. That's really important that you brought that up about Haiti because even as our first episode talked about, we talked to someone who was the product of Haitian immigration. But how you're talking about it is a different experience than what he might have experienced or his family might have experienced when they came to the U.S. We do often situate it as around like these really dramatic voyages that kind of make the U.S. and other European Western figures like these saving graces and these havens but immigration is bigger than that so I just really appreciate you lifting that and, and shouting out Haiti. So given that Hanak and the fact that we're often not saying the right things or not getting at the true essence of what a person's experience is or context when they're context when they're migrating. And I know this is like your area of expertise. I know there's all different kind of terms that describe the differences in how people are migrating those experiences. Can you walk us through like those terms and help explain how they're different? Definitely, definitely. That's a great point. Um, and to, to add to what you were already mentioning, words matter in terms of the, the terms that we use to describe individuals involved in migration. Uh, our use of different terms is actually really important, even in ensuring the safety uh, and the protection of, of those that are seeking that new life um, and that are actually part of the process. We have individuals who are part of the forced migration cycle and then the voluntary migration cycle. With forced migration, those that are leaving their homelands as a result of whether it be conflict or they're leaving because they do not have you know the choice to remain and then voluntary migration involving uh, individuals who for economic reasons perhaps are leaving their home of record but when it comes to forced migration there are a few terms that have been standardized by different organizations particularly the UN the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees they've provided some definitions towards a few of these terms first one being an asylum seeker so an individual that is leaving their homeland outside of their borders um, and is seeking sanctuary in that case they are then re requesting asylum and about every year according to UNHCR around 1 million people seek asylum there are systems that are in place uh, from an international perspective that help determine who qualifies for asylum for international protection essentially and so an asylum seeker is someone who is requesting sanctuary but has yet to be processed so they are not an actual they're not legally a refugee yet they're requesting that status to become a refugee and to receive the international protections that a refugee would have and so claims are put oftentimes to the governments of uh, the countries that the asylum seeker is seeking a refugee status in, or they're put to the United Nations, the UNHCR in particular. Once you are a refugee, that's an actual legal status that you have now. As a refugee, you're actually specifically defined and protected under international law because your state of origin is no longer able to protect you, hence why you left the country. Uh, and so refugees are people outside of their country of origin. And according to UNHCR, they're outside of their country of origin because of either feared persecution, conflict, violence, or as stated uh, by the UNHCR, other circumstances that have seriously disturbed public order and who, as a result, require international protection from a legal status, from a protection kind of standpoint. These individuals 
individuals being labeled as asylum seekers or being recognized as someone who cannot return to their homeland is important for their safety and distinguishing that whether it be mm-hmm. yeah when it comes to the narrative you know in the media uh, we oftentimes we see folks who argue these individuals for instance that are crossing the Mediterranean we see this argument play out where you'll hear people say like these are economic migrants solely economic migrants and that can hinder someone's ability to seek asylum right if you're leaving your country of origin and you cannot go back or else you are in serious danger if the narrative being portrayed you know globally is that you are not in danger or that you are just an economic migrant then it puts you in a very dangerous situation so words definitely matter yeah and then outside of refugees we also have individuals that are forced outside of uh, their homes or but they actually remain within the same borders and those individuals are called internally displaced persons or IDPs. Uh, so someone who's displaced from their home to another location, but they're still within the same borders, within the same same country, essentially. Even just by all those terms, we see that migration definitely isn't monolithic and there's so many different key terms and there's so many circumstances that individuals are fleeing. So it's important that we also talk about some of those push and pull factors that individuals have when it comes to leaving their countries of origin. You might have learned, you know, push and pull factors from social studies class growing up in school, but it's definitely important to distinguish, you know, push factors are circumstances that lead an individual to leave their country of origin. And then you have pull factors where those are factors that were opportunities that led an individual to a new country. I think an important question to ask is what are some common push factors that we see for migrants across the the diaspora Um, and what are the circumstances that make it difficult for people to remain in their home country? We've briefly touched upon this but what are some things I think that that we've come across or that come to mind for us? Okay Hanak, I think for me I would say, and again, I always frame this. I think that's why it's so great that we're both having this conversation. And that's just one of the gold things about Ubuntu, our podcast, is that we have these different experiences. And so I am going to really speak from the from perspectives that I've seen about other people in my life in terms of those push factors for migrants across the African diaspora. And so I think we talked about some of the obvious ones, you know, push factors, conflict, you know, war, whether that be internally, whether that be regionally. I think another important push factor that is not as often discussed, um, and it's interesting because I know there's all these legal definitions that you mentioned and, you know, not, not just legal, but also like geopolitical that are defined by like the UN and all these other institutions that sometimes feel like there's overlap between like what's forced and what's voluntary. Um, because I feel like another, um, I feel like another push factor that people don't talk about often is like particularly like gender-based violence or the way that certain cultures, there might be certain practices like FGM, for those who don't know, like female genital mutilation and other practices locally in a place that are, you know, potentially dangerous to certain populations, you know, violence against certain marginalized groups like LGBTQ folks that decide that this country or this particular policy or this law in the state or the nation I live in is pushing me away. And it's not like, it wouldn't be classified as the U from the UN, you know, I'm being forced out, whether this is voluntary migration, but that experience between individuals, depending on their positionality, might beg to differ. Like I am being pushed out or this is not forced. Like my life is in danger because of my identity, not just as a person of the state, but the other intersections that are involved that are maybe not welcomed or maybe not, you know, um, safe or tolerated here. 
You get what I'm saying? Definitely. That's right on. Um, It's definitely right on. And I think, like you said, there are many push factors that oftentimes it might be more difficult to get that recognition from. Like you said, like the LGBTIQ um, situation where you are a member of a marginalized group uh, where the government of your your home of record basically prohibits feeling safe in that country. Being a member of a group, uh, a community, an ethnic group, or being part of a faith community uh, that isn't recognized by the state. That's another big one as well. Exactly. Big one. Definitely. And I think to add to the the pull factor of that, recognizing that there are other countries where your freedom of speech, your freedom of religion will be recognized, um, or you've seen examples of that being recognized, and that will uh, play a role in you deciding to go to that individual country. Um, hmm. Or believing that... Um, even though you might be, even though you're being pushed from your home of record, mm-hmm. you might be going to a different country because you believe in the opportunity that's there. Uh, so it's a combination of, yes, like I, I am leaving because it's not safe for me here, but I'm going to this new place because I have hope that um, there is opportunity here. Mm. Um, and then there are also instances where you are leaving. Uh, your home of record and you're you're migrating to another country um because you not because of the opportunity but because you had to leave um and then when you're in that new community you're faced with uh new challenges uh new difficulties uh and so oftentimes you know there's a nuance in that uh, which we'll actually we'll go into right. later on and so yeah those are all real factors that can push or pull individuals seeking a new life and unfortunately for that reason individuals are often exploited and so we we've we've heard stories um particularly we've we've heard stories about african migrants who on on their journey to to europe through the mediterranean sea um are exploited by by whether it be authority figures uh government officials smugglers and traffickers we've seen stories of that and um it might have been uh, a couple years ago where things went viral where we heard stories of of african migrants essentially being part of of slavery um of a slave trade uh in libya and it went viral i remember people were sharing posts and just really upset by it and there was definitely a lot of discommotion as to like how could this happen like you know this how could this happen in like 2016 2017 like how could there still be slavery but you know the context of it all matters right and understanding these are migrants who are fleeing either you know they're being forced out of their home record or they're they're seeking opportunity and because of that they're being exploited and it's a constant cycle where because people will always migrate the opportunity opens up for people to take advantage of that what are some of the ways um maybe it was from when you know the african slave trade news went viral uh or maybe it was through other circumstances what are some of the ways that you've heard of or maybe that you'd imagine this exploitation taking place or maybe you've you've seen it from other people and their their experiences yeah i remember when that was really viral and i i always knew that i definitely remember when that came out um and all the news and the heavy media line a part of me was confused because I'm like, didn't we always all know that modern day slavery was still happening? Um, and, you know, I follow organizations like IJM, the International Justice Mission, whose like sole purpose is to free slaves um, who are still involved in like 
I think every country except for one has outlawed slavery. Yeah, I believe so. I don't know the one country. We'll we'll find it and we'll link it. If we're wrong, you'll see that it's linked in the description. But I think it's every country except for one. And like you said, and like you said it so great that because people are always going to migrate because migration is as common to to humanity as anything else. It's movement. There will always be those who are going to exploit that, you know, because we live in a capitalist world. Those forces will always look to derive profit from that in ways that are really harmful to people. And um, I guess when you asked about like, what are what are examples? It's really sad. I've um, really come across and learned about a lot of different schemes and businesses where people, and I know we're going to probably talk a little bit about this, you know, people who are who are actually doing more of those dangerous journeys, you know, um, are crossing seas and, you know, like dangerous borders, really mountainous or um, dangerous regions. You know, there are systems to, to, to go with people. There are, you know, there are people who prepare. There are entire, like, businesses and underground economies that are sustained through services to help people migrate where countries have considered that process illegal and make it very difficult and a lot of those stories i mean it we can even we're going to link some in the description but you know from places like vice news and um the washington post and you know all kinds of you know there's been a lot of public information about how people have cut corners people have been placed on rafts that were defective people have been given wrong intel and then sold that to government to be captured it's really sad and it's really dangerous and i think the important thing to also note is that a lot of governments both foreign and domestic to the countries that people are coming and leaving from are involved in these underground economies and are are also leveraging and exploiting them to keep people away and so you have a lot of folks who are spies you know a lot of clandestine people who are who are infiltrating these underground economies and who are providing dangerous exposure and services that are purposely keeping people out of countries. It's it's really sad and it's really it makes that process for people who are migrating a lot more dangerous, a lot more risky. It's a lot of, a lot of people don't, you know, it takes a lot. And I think we, we often miss these in the conversations. We just see, oh, somebody was somewhere and now they're here and they're either a problem or they're either a liability. And we don't think about all of the things in between that really co- can compromise a person's safety and for people who are like bringing their kids and those they love and they're doing that alone and they're trusting strangers you know who could easily exploit them because once they're once they've decided to embark on this you know they're legally expendable and sometimes lost forever they're unidentified people it's so dangerous definitely it's it's extremely dangerous and we hear stories of how uh, individuals are, are smuggled or they're trafficked. Mm. I mean, those are two terms that I've had in the past difficulty kind of understanding what the main differences are. So this one actually uh, outlined that a bit. So according to the Interagency Coordination Group Against the Trafficking of Persons, trafficking, the actual action of trafficking involves the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons. The purpose is, you know, like we've already shared, exploitation whether it be through sexual exploitation, forced labor, uh, slavery, practices that are similar to that. So an example of that that the UN provides uh, is a person maybe taking a job as a domestic worker 
in a different part of their country uh, under the promise of a good salary and benefits. However, the person is working under very degrading work conditions and doesn't receive a salary at all. And then with the smuggling uh, of migrants, the definition that this organization provides is the procurement of the illegal entry of a person into a state party of which the person is not a national or a permanent resident in order to obtain directly or indirectly a financial or other material benefit. With smuggling, oftentimes the smuggler's relationship with the migrant ends once the migrant has crossed international borders and they've, they've made their payment, they've paid their fee. There have been cases where migrants have been traced down by, by smugglers and these smugglers have demanded additional payments be made. So an example of smuggling would involve a group of people charging money to migrants, let's say to drive them across a border into another country. That payment is made for them to bypass the official requirements to enter the country. And if migrants don't have enough money, oftentimes the group might actually just take whatever possessions they have as payment. Uh, so we can see that there are uh, slight differences between smuggling and trafficking, uh, just to add on to what you said. So we have all these challenges that migrants face, you know, on their journey to, to their new home. But then once they arrive in their new home, they also navigate an extreme amount of challenges. What are some, and I think this connects with part one, as we talked about the experiences of black migrants in the U.S., what do you imagine are some of the unique challenges that black individuals face? What are what are the contrasts that we see between their own expectations versus what they actually experience? And what are some of the common challenges that black migrants face globally overall? To answer your question, I think, and you said it, we talked about this a good deal in the last episode, and it's come up in a number of episodes through different conversations. I want to think about it, though, in terms of like the global perspective, because there's some obvious challenges for Black migrants, you know, who who land, who arrive in the U.S. But I think globally, in terms of like what Black people are experiencing and facing, there's a lot of parallels in terms of anti-Blackness. Anti-Blackness is global. And that's a common that's a common thread that comes through a lot of our conversations about a lot of different topics. People will continue to hone in on it because it's the truth. And I, I'm thinking about a friend of mine, particularly he um, he was from a country in East Africa, and he decided to he was a voluntary migrant. He left his home. He left he left his home country because he felt like I went to school and I invested in myself to have an opportunity for an employment employment that never really materialized and made its way to the UAE um and his experience there he wasn't there for that long <laughs> he was there for maybe a few years but he talked about dealing with in his own way and words what I deal with as a black person in the U.S. the racism the feeling that his education didn't matter that what he had worked for was not regarded in the way that it should have been because he was African and because he was not a formal citizen of this country that he came to and his challenges with accessing housing as a result, his challenges with really being fully immigrated, excuse me, not immigrated, like assimilated into that country. But he did also talk about the experience of finding community and with other folks from his country and around Africa, his the region he was from, who were also living in the UAE, who also had education, went there to do a variety of professional degrees or a variety of professional things through their degrees and found that they were custodial workers or working in security or domestics and 
that's not a disservice to anybody whose life is doing that. But the fact that they were locked out of other opportunities, it built a camaraderie. And so that's a different experience. Um, even like to wrap my head around geographically uh, as a black person who's from America to imagine coming from Africa and going to, you know, somewhere in the Middle East. But the, the parallels are there and it is the systemic nature and how anti-blackness works to just kind of keep black people at the bottom no matter where they are. So yeah, that's an experience I felt like it's kind of connected to what you were saying. I, I totally agree. And I think what you said about anti-blackness and that is the theme of what we've been not learning per se. Like, I think it's just something we, we've been aware of. Right. Like, we see that theme. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we've seen that theme uh, come across in, in a lot of these right. contexts. And like part one in the American context of the experience of a black migrant being very different to other migrants who are not black, we see that play out from a global perspective. Um, even if you look at those that immigrate to Europe and the experiences that black migrants have as opposed to someone, you know, to be honest, from mm-hmm. from a country in the Middle East, for example, let's say someone who might be from Africa, um, but might be part of North Africa, someone who might be immigrating from an Arabic speaking country. Mina. Yeah, from me, yeah, from Mina. I love saying that because I didn't study IR like Hinnock and other folks who on this podcast. And I found out that acronym and I was like, ooh, that's good. Mina. Can you explain to the folks what Mina Mina is? And then I won't interrupt you anymore. (laughs) Mina is a term that encompasses the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, So so the countries in North Africa, you know, that include, I might not be saying them all, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. Is Sudan technically part of me or no? That's a question that I've I've asked people that before too, and I think it depends on who you talk to. I think it depends on. I think it depends. Yeah, yeah. I've asked people that too, and I think some folks have identified Sudan as being part of me, and others have not. Look at me know my geography just a little. Look at me. But <laughs> but I think you know the media has. I know we always talk about the media, but we've seen examples of this in the media. This exam this this sort of narrative around exceptionalism and how black people, um, in particular those that are migrants, kind of need to show this exceptionalism to fit into the new societies that they're in. This this need for, for people to kind of prove themselves, to prove themselves as being worthy of being in the new society. One example that sticks to mind for me is the story of Mamadou Gassama, who at the time was 22 years old, a migrant from Mali, who actually rescued a four-year-old uh, who was dangling off a balcony in Paris. I don't know if you remember this story. It was in 2018. I remember that. I do. Yeah. And in the media, he was hailed as a hero. And you could see him. He got nicknamed the Spartan Man because guy literally, like, yeah, he climbed. I remember that. Scaled the whole wall. Yeah, scaled the whole wall to save that child who, you know, is in a lot of danger, obviously. But Mamadou's act was captured around the world and that led to the French president Emmanuel Macron saying that he had invited uh, Mr. Gassama to apply for French citizenship stating that because France is built on desire and Mr. Gassama's commitment clearly showed that he has that desire and so I remember when I initially saw the story I thought it was really 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 cool like that this man did this really heroic feat and I think his story as being a migrant from Mali who wasn't a citizen to me it felt like you know a really feel-good story and you know really inspirational and I remember seeing a cartoonist with the image of two people climbing a wall and then one person climbing the wall had in bubbles good migrant question mark the other person bad migrant 
question mark. Um, and it was a really interesting, you know, depiction of this story and, you know, the, the larger implications of it all and the undertones that we're seeing. And it wasn't the first time. Back in 2015, in France as well, a 24-year-old individual who also was from Mali named Lasana uh, Batili received a lot of praise for hiding customers in a room after a gunman attacked a kosher supermarket in Paris during the middle of terrorist attacks from Dash. And so it definitely isn't the first time where migrants have been portrayed or have been honored for their heroic acts, but then it raises the conversation of, you know, who is deemed worthy? Is it because of our service, right, that we're deemed worthy? And what makes a good migrant versus a bad migrant? You know, because at that same time, or it was around that same time with both these individuals where we were hearing more stories about refugees that were actually in France at a makeshift camp called Calais Camp. Hmm. Kelly is the entry point into the channel, the channel tunnel that connects France to the UK. A lot of what was occurring was migrants who were in this camp, makeshift camps. Their goal essentially was to go into the UK uh, through this through this port to either jump on a truck or to even hide in a ferry and to essentially seek that life in the UK. Um, so you have folks that were really struggling to make ends meet that were in a Calais camp for a very long time. And we saw the the reception that they received and we also saw how France around that same time was attempting to restrict uh, the flow of migrants into their country. Calais camp ended up being shut down in 2016. The UK and France both currently are working on a border barrier that seeks to, to prevent migrants from from gaining access to this channel. So we're seeing you know this all of this stuff going on in the background where we're seeing, you know, in the narratives that are being made and, and systemically how, how these governments are attempting to restrict migrants and to, you know, inhibit people from gaining access, right? And you're, you're creating more barriers for migrants to, to find that better life, um, many of whom are leaving places where they cannot return. Right. And then you see on the flip side how individuals like Mamadou or Lasana are being, you know, heralded as, as heroes um, for their acts and right the dissonance <laughs> the dissonance right and you see like this you see this image being formed of to be a good migrant or to be to be a member of our society you need to to do all of this right you have to be exceptional you know even though we are restricting you and we're putting in all these barriers systemically to stop you from succeeding to stop you from having we're killing you <laughs> yeah we're killing you essentially like france sponsored so many like france italy greece they they sponsored so many like mercenary attacks on folks who are traveling per by boat to their countries sinking the ships i mean like these are like publicly like known facts and i feel like another thing that's that speaks to what that example was like i don't know if you heard about i'm pretty sure of course you heard about it but like what was announced in december of 2020 that france was fast-tracking citizenship to all these frontline workers who have been essentially carrying the french people through the pandemic and they're like oh france government's like you know as a sign of our appreciation you all get citizenship and on the uh, you know a lot of people were like this is how you do immigration policy and this is this is this is this is the standard and it's like that's such a dangerous thing to say and to and to herald France and their decision to naturalize people as because of these acts of service that really were treating them as expendable it's saying the only way that you'll rise to a level of deserving to be in our country is if you put your life on the line if you're expendable if you provide 
labor that we're not willing to give, you know, if you provide sacrifices that we're not willing to make, then you're worthy of being a French citizen. Like you gotta scale a dang building and save a dangling child, you know, putting your life at risk before you can be a citizen of our country while we're simultaneously deporting, killing, disrupting the lives of your family, friends, and you know, p potential colleagues who are trying to come here as well. It's not right. Exactly. You see the dissonance in all of it, and you see how how messed up it is. But there's a lack of, I think a lot, a lot of the narrative has made it hard for people to be cognizant of that. Um, and so you get this perception that, that migrants or that individuals have to hustle and grind, um, even though that's, that's what they've been doing the whole time. And for them to even leave their homeland has been so traumatic for many of them. And so uh, to put individuals in a position where they have to absolutely exceed expectations and climb buildings and do all of this <laughs> and do your and do your labor like we don't want you here but you have to be here to do our labor like that's wild exactly it's a wild it's wild exactly and i think that reminds me too i mean there have been other instances where european systems have taken advantage of of the african diaspora of of black migrants um to fill their own their own labor needs their own labor shortages have done so in an exploitive way one thing that comes to mind is the windrush scandal in the uk where yep. between 1948 and 1971 people from caribbean countries former british colonies arrived to the uk to fill labor shortages that were there after World War II. Exactly, exactly. That's such a great connection that you made because, and I feel like our Caribbean and our British brothers and sisters are gonna appreciate that because literally, they were like, we gotta rebuild post-war, you know, and um, let's, just, let's just outsource the folks. And these are folks who are a part of the colonies that they've already been plundering, exploiting, extracting, you know, essentially destroying. And it's just like, let's just move our cargo around. Yeah. Um, and then when they got to those places, when a lot of like Caribbean folks, a lot of folks from West Indies got to the UK and, you know, the people who are part of the Windrush generation, they went through generations upon generations of systemic violence, injustice, anti-blackness. Exactly. To be accepted, treated as they were not a part of the, the, the British monarchy when they were the ones who were sustaining it for the last like two centuries. Mm. Four centuries. <laughs> exactly. Five, I mean, like, it's it's vicious. And it, I feel like I love how that example, because it just goes to show, and it kind of it kind of comes full circle on what I said in the beginning. We look at Black migrants. We look at their experiences. We try to localize that process to just Black people, to just Africa. And we're often, our, our migration is often the result of being the pawns in other people's unfair games against us. That's right on. That's... Exactly, I think perfect way to sum all this up. Amen. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was this was a good conversation. I feel like we did we did justice and properly tying up this conversation. Obviously, our experiences are two of 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 countless um, as it relates to the experience of Black migration. I hope to our listeners we were able to give you know that kind of well rounded experience and that exposure, but. Even as even though we planned it this way, as I'm at the end of both conversations, I'm really just kind of struck by all the parallel and all the many like interconnected experiences of black people 
who find them way find themselves to the U.S. find themselves across Africa from places of actually I mean all kind of stuff and even the conversations we've had about what it means to return. There's all these political systems that are involved, but it's like always the like that personal is political, political is personal, that you know individual systemic, and I think this conversation really explores how we kind of get caught caught in that. So thank you. This was you brought a lot to this conversation, Hinnock. I learned a lot. Thank you, David. Thanks. I mean, I learned a lot from you as well in this uh, conversation and in part one as well. It was really well done and definitely, like you said, there are so many parallels and it's a reminder. You know, it goes back to our theme of Ubuntu and the solidarity that we need as a community um, in understanding each other's issues. You better take it back to Ubuntu. You better take it back. Take it back to the mission. Exactly. And understanding um, that we are better united and we're better even if we have complexities and, and differences. You know, understanding that we have a common unity um, through all of that. So thank you again, David. And thank you to all of our listeners. Again, we will be sharing relevant links uh, to organizations that are doing work in migration as well as articles uh, that we've referenced in this conversation as well. Thank you all for listening and take care. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well.